you got your Bibles this morning, I want you to turn with me to the book of Luke. Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24. It's a, it's a story I've, I've never actually preached on before. And I really have enjoyed this week uh, in thinking about this part. This is Easter Day. Uh, there are two men who were followers of Christ. So... They have been in Jerusalem. We don't know how long they have followed Christ. Uh, but it seems like they possibly were there, you know, during the last Sunday when Jesus rode in as a triumphal entry. So they were, they, they saw Zechariah 9-9. You know, he's riding on this little donkey like we talked about last week. They, they perhaps were there at Simon the leper's house when when Mary anoints Jesus uh, with oil. Uh, they were there for the events of the cross and the, all of the, with, with Pilate and him being crucified. They were there on that quiet Saturday when kind of their hopes were ripped up. They were there Sunday morning and they begin to hear the reports that the ladies were saying that they went and the body's not there and, and some angels had showed up. Now, Maybe the best question that we should ask them when we get to heaven is, okay, so why did you leave on Sunday afternoon? That I don't understand. Like getting excited, right, that they should have stayed. But they left to go back to their hometown, which is Emmaus. So the two of them are walking. They're trying to piece all of this stuff together. And Jesus shows up and starts walking with them. All right? Now he's incognito. He he kind of kept himself uh, from them understanding who he was, but he just joins in, and we get to join in the conversation in about verse 18. He says, one of them named Cleopas answered and said to Jesus, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things that have happened here these days? And Jesus said to them, what things? And they said to him, the things about Jesus the Nazarene, who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word uh, in the sight of God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him. But he w- we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all of this, it is the third day since these things happened. But also some women among us amazed us when they were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find his body. And they came and saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just exactly as the woman had said, but him they did not see. And Jesus said to them, O foolish men and slow of heart, to believe in all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things to enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. So a couple weeks ago, Tammy and I were on vacation. We're up in Washington State. We were listening to some podcasts. And I was actually listening to Robbie's podcast, Christ, Culture, and Coffee. Now, I couldn't give two hoots about coffee, but Christ and culture are, are, are important. So I was listening, great podcast. If you don't subscribe, you should. Uh, they had a guy on by the name of Dan Kimball, and he used a word that I had not heard in a long time. It's the word meta-narrative. 
meta-narrative. And as I was looking at this, I, all of a sudden this, this came together. What Jesus is doing here is he is sharing the meta-narrative. You say, Steve, what's a meta-narrative? It is, best way you could describe it is probably the stories of stories. It's the big 50,000 foot view of how all of these different random stories interconnect. And Jesus goes back and gives them the meta-narrative of what has just happened in Jerusalem. As they're trying to process what, you know, he wrote in, we thought he was the Messiah, then he died. Now they're talking about the fact that he's alive. How does it all connect? Well, how he connects it is in the meta-narrative. So I, so I want to share today, I want to do what Jesus did. Now, I won't do it as well, but I want to do the same thing. I want to tell you the meta the meta-narrative that led to the events that actually continue to lead to today. So just like Jesus, he started with Moses. That's where I want to start. Moses, of course, is the author of the first five books of the Bible. And it starts with creation. To be honest with you, to understand what happened on Good Friday and Easter, you've got to understand this whole idea of the creation. Because when God made us, God made us to have relationship with him, to know him, to have fellowship with him, and then in our purpose in life is to reflect him. We were his image bearers. God made us in the image of God. We are to bear his image to one another. That's, that was whole, God's whole design in, in, in creation. And what's really interesting is that from the very beginning of time, that relationship of us with God was based upon faith and not upon works. God was to be the provider. God was the one who was going to take care of Adam and Eve, was going to take care of the generation. So you remember, he creates Adam from the dust of the earth. He's created the whole world. Then, though, he creates a very special place for them. It's called the Garden of Eden. And he puts in it all of these fruit trees and all of these things that are of every tree of the garden you can eat. They're for your food. They're for your enjoyment. Oh, by the way, Adam, I see it's good for you not to be alone here. You, you know, so he takes a rib from Adam's side and he makes Eve and he brings her to her. By the way, the shortest courtship in all of history. But it was all based upon faith that God loved them, that God wanted to do what was best. You know, you don't see Adam going there, hmm, why is God bringing me this woman? Is she really good for me? No, he's going, wow, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, right? There was this faith relationship that God was going to take care of them, that God had their best in mind. Well, here's the problem. Adam and Eve rebelled. They sinned. They fell. Remember, God has said, okay, all these trees in the garden are for you and for your food and for your enjoyment. There's just one tree. It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat of that one because the day you eat of it, you're going to die. So guess where do they hang out, right? They hang out there at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and the enemy shows up. The enemy begins to question, is God really good? Does he really have your, you in mind? In fact, is God really trustworthy that you can have faith in him? He says you're going to die. I'm telling you, you're not going to die. And oh, by the way, the reason God doesn't want you to eat of this is he knows the day you eat of it, you're going to become wise just like him. Now, here's the moment. Do they walk in faith? You know, God loves us. God has our best interests in mind. God will provide all that we need. 
Or did they turn to their own understanding? Oh, by the way, the fruit on that tree looked good to eat. It was a delight to the eyes. It was desirable to make one wise. Trust God, trust me. They trusted themselves. They thought they knew better. They sinned. And that brings death. God says that day you're going to die. Now what you've got to understand is biblically, when we talk about death, at the heart of death, you know, we think coffins, right? We, we, we think uh, funerals. Biblically, when God speaks about death, what, at the heart of it, it's separation. Physical death, our soul from our body. Spiritual death, it is our soul from God. And sure enough, on that day, they died. They died spiritually. Their relationship with God is changed forever. They are kicked out of God's presence. Those who were made to know him, to have fellowship with him, to reflect him, now do not have the same relationship, the same intimacy where they walked and talked, this same faith relationship that God is there. They're kicked out of the garden. They died spiritually. Ultimately, that same day, that whole idea of physical death started. In fact, it's not very long before Cain kills his brother Abel and that whole uh, devolution piece starts, right? Corruption comes in. This, this thing of old age, right, that some of us might someday get to starts kicking in and the body starts winding down as it goes towards death. It all started on that day. But here's the thing you got to know. In that moment, the spiritual death, the being separated from God, created all kinds of brokenness in the heart and the soul of man. I mean, he lost his purpose. His purpose was we are to be his image bearers. We're to reflect him. But if we don't know him, how can we reflect him? He lost his hope. Right now, I mean, this is the thing. God was going to provide. God was going to take care. Now, the the only one we can hope in is in ourselves, right? Self-reliance. And we like to talk a big game, but the reality is most of us know when we're laying our head on our pillow at night that we are not all that, right? We don't know how it's going to work out. We don't know that we can get out of these messes. And so, Life becomes this whole thing of how do we try to manage life. They also lost their innocence. And at the heart of it, self-reliance, not faith, becomes the MO. It's how we work. So we now create our gods in the image that we want them to try to get us to what we want. to, To pacify us, to give us senses of meaning and purpose. And then as you continue the meta-narrative from that early time, the next stage, best word I could come up with is the interim. And we're talking 6,000 years, 4,000 years here of human history. If I could give you three names that are probably at the core of it, one's Noah, one's Abraham, one's Moses. You see, what you begin to see is that man now in his brokenness apart from God, devolves really quickly. In fact, Genesis 3, they fall. By Genesis chapter 6, you, you get there and you read this. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. 
Man is going to destroy himself. Man's going to, man is so corrupt that this is all going to come to end. So what God does is God actually saves the human race by picking one man, this man Noah. And here's the thing about Noah. As best we understand, of course, what God's going to ask him to do is to build a boat. Not just any boat, a big boat right? Two of every creature is going to come on. We don't even know. Now, by the way, the reason he's got to build a boat is because it's going to rain. Well, it's never rained. Best we know, nobody's ever built a boat before. We've never been told that Noah was this great master boat builder. In fact, I would argue with you the reason he was chosen was not because of his skills and carpentry. The reason he was chosen was because he was a man of faith. Hebrews reminds us by faith Noah being warned by God about things not yet seen. It's never rained. Now there's going to be a flood. Ah, in reverence prepared the ark for the salvation of his household. He was a man of faith. His relationship with God is, is based on that faith relationship, and God now uses him to save the human race. So sure enough, he builds the boat. The animals come on. It does rain. God breaks up the, the waters of the deep. The earth floods for 100, or yeah, actually an entire year. They, uh, they float around. Now God starts again with Noah and his family. The problem is it doesn't take very long. You're just a couple generations from, from Noah. You get a guy by the name of Nimrod who uh, God had said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Nimrod goes, no, we want to make a great name for ourselves, self-reliance. We don't want to listen to God. We think we know better. And so in to keep everybody from spreading out, we're going to build this thing, this, this, uh, this tower, Right? It's going to reach into the heavens and will keep us all together. That's where God had to come down and confuse their languages. The Tower of Babel. And it wasn't very long after that, God chooses a second guy by the name of Abraham. Again, I would remind you that we don't know much about Abraham before God calls him. We, we don't know that he was some great, great guy or man who even went after the, the Lord. But what we do realize is that he became a man of faith. So God calls Abraham out, says, listen, I'm, I want you to leave your family. I'm going to take you to a land where you don't own a speck of dirt. I'm going to give it to you. I'm going to make you a great nation. Oh, by the way, you have no kids. And through you, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. What do we know about Abraham? That he was uh, some great man? No. What do we know about him? He was a man of faith. Genesis 15, 6 said, then he believed the Lord. He walked in faith. He took God at his word. And it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And so sure enough, he comes to this land. Now, it took him a long time, but God finally gave him a son by the name of Isaac. Isaac had a son by the name of Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons. There are 12 sons that are tribes of Israel. God takes them down into Egypt, and there for over 400 years, God grows them into a great country. That brings us to the third guy, Moses. Moses is now is raised up. Now, I would remind you that when God finds Moses, he's not some great spiritual leader. He's out in the desert, kind of run away from everything, just doing life by himself. But when God comes to Moses, Moses responds in faith. Hebrews tells us, by faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. And he considered the reproach of Christ far greater riches. I mean, because he was in Pharaoh's household. 
that he rejected all that and actually took on Pharaoh. Why? Because he was a man of faith. And if you remember the story, he led them out of Egypt around the wilderness for 40 years. If you're reading through the Bible this year, you're probably in that Joshua Judges. Joshua takes them in. But man, Judges, now they're in the land. And what happens? They fail over and over again. You know why? Because they don't live by faith. They live in their self-reliance. Now let me, let me just take one little side here in this whole meta-narrative. When Moses came, God gave Moses the law. And sadly, what a lot of people think is that the law became the way of salvation to have a relationship with God. And that is not true. Salvation, relationship with God, has always been based on faith. Never works. It's never on self-reliance. In fact, you see with Jesus, with those that were trusting in how they tried to keep the law, that was not the purpose of the law. The law was to protect them because the Messiah is going to come out of this, but it was also to give them guide rails of how to live life so you are dependent upon the Lord. So that you are people of faith, right? Because you give and you trust God to provide. You, you, you do this, that God will take care of it. It was all about learning and teaching them to walk in faith. But they failed over and over. And that's the whole of the Old Testament, which brings us, of course, to the main event, which is Jesus. God had promised to Abraham that through him all the world is going to be blessed. And so Jesus comes into the world. We talked about this last week. As the Messiah, it's proclaimed at his birth. It is seen throughout his life. He came to be the Savior of the world. So Jesus is born of Mary. He's born of a virgin. He's the perfect God-man, fully God, fully man. He lives a perfect life. He's never sinned. Why? Because he was a man of faith. You know, after Jesus' birth, remember the first time we see Jesus? He's 12 years old. His family had come to to Jerusalem to to be at one of the festivals, and then they left, but Jesus wasn't with them, right? They come back. Where did they find Jesus? In the temple. And what did he say? Don't you know I have to be about my father's business? He was following after God in faith, even to the point of now... In the garden, just a couple days before this, sweating great drops of blood, he prays, Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but yours be done. He perfectly followed in faith. Now, because he was sinless, because he was a man of faith, he didn't have to die. But what the Bible tells us is now Jesus goes to the cross voluntarily to bear our sins so he can provide atonement for us. I mean, the most incredible thing is Jesus is beaten and the crown of thorns placed upon his head and he's nailed to the cross that this perfect one now takes the sin of Adam and Eve, the sin of you and me, And he places it upon Jesus, and now as God sees our sin upon him, that same judgment, right? Sin brings death. It's got to play on Jesus. 2 Corinthians says, he made him who knew no sin to become sin for us. So as he hangs there in our sin, death has to take place. It's the judgment of sin. 
He didn't deserve it. But now, because he takes my sin and your sin upon him, it's got to happen. Remember, we talked about death as separation. The first piece of death that they struggled with, that they faced, was this broken relationship with God. As Jesus hangs on the cross, Matthew tells us this. Now, about the sixth hour, darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cries out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Foretold back in Psalm 22. The one who had had eternal relationship with his father. This relationship now is different. God turns his back on his own son. Why? Because he has to face death for us. And at the heart of it, his relationship with his father now is changed because he bears our sin. And then he's got to face physical death. So sure enough, at the end, he dismisses his spirit and he dies and makes sure that he's physically dead. They stick the spear in his side. Best we understand, probably punctured his heart because blood comes out mixed with water. But here's the thing. Big picture. Jesus is reversing the curse of sin. So you go back to the garden and all that we lost, all that we now face because of our rebellion, Jesus takes our rebellion and he bears it for us so that he can reverse that relationship, the curse of sin. Jesus offers now, as he hangs on that cross, that idea of forgiveness to everyone. So Jesus now, and what's really interesting, you think about the fact that he reverses the curse. So just before he dies, atonement is gonna, has been made. What does he say? He says, it is finished. Now what a, what, a, what a unique thing to say when you're dying. And so many misunderstood this. And what they misunderstand is what Jesus was really saying. In our words, our language, three words. In his original language, one, to telestai. It was a common word. It was used every day in the marketplace. And it meant the debt is paid. It's paid in full. What a strange thing to say when you're about to die. And yet when you understand that Jesus, big picture, came to provide atonement for the sin of man that started back in the Garden of Eden, that he had faced death for us when he didn't deserve it in order to provide our atonement. It makes all kinds of sense. What's really interesting is the very next thing he says, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit, right? He's going to be, when, when Mary sees him, don't hold on to me. I'm going to the Father. His relationship is completely restored. Atonement has been made. Resurrection happens. Death, physical death, has been conquered. And what Jesus now offers us to everyone is this forgiveness, this restored relationship with God to all of us through faith. Now, see, here's the, here's the issue. I've, you know, I, I've shared the good news of Jesus with so many over the years. Many who, you know, grew up in a church or know about Jesus or, and when I get to this part, this is where the confusion is. 
because so many think that in order to be saved, in order to, to, to go to heaven, what you've got to do is you've got to be a good person. You've got to clean up your life. You have to go to church. You have to do this. You do this. You do this. But quite honestly, if I'm looking at the fact that I'm a good person and I go to church and I do this, who am I reliant on? Am I reliant on Jesus or am I relying on me? You see, God's salvation has always been not about what we do, but about what he does. It's about faith. It's about trusting in Jesus alone. It's not about the good works that you and I bring to the table, the cleaning up of our life. That's why just a few months before this, standing at the tomb of Lazarus, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life, and he who believes in me shall live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me. It's not, hey, everyone who goes to the temple or goes to the synagogue or goes to the church or everyone who cleans up their life or everybody who follows the Ten Commandments. No, he who believes. Faith. It's always been the key. That's how God structured our relationship with him. And so it's to everyone who believes. And the cool thing is, is the meta-narrative, the big picture, the big story continues today. Because today as you sit here, maybe you're sitting at home watching online, God offers this, this beautiful gift of salvation, forgiveness, relationship with him to everyone. Doesn't matter what you've done. Doesn't matter what a mess you made of your life or how good you've been. Doesn't matter. In fact, you, maybe the best known verse in the Bible, John 3, 16, puts it like this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever, I love that word, whoever, whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Folks, you see, you know, some of you are sitting there going, but Steve, you don't know what I've done. And you're right, I don't. I don't really want to know because you don't know what I've done and I don't want you to know that. So we'll just keep call it even. But what we've done doesn't matter. Jesus died to pay for all of our sin. And all he calls us to is that we will believe and when you come to put your faith in Jesus, you know Jesus now. Now you can experience life to the full. Why? Because now this is what you were wired for. This is what you were created to do. It's to know him, to have relationship with him, to be his image bearer. And you think about what we lost. You think about that sense of a purpose, right? Well, now we have a new purpose Jesus gave to us to go make disciples, right? Every day to show Jesus in our life, to live Jesus. We have a reason to get up and to live. We have that sense of hope, right? Because we know that, that he has conquered death and to be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord. When you know Jesus, you have that assurance of, of eternal life. Right? In fact, we, we look ahead to, to the day we know Jesus is going to come back. Jesus is going to set up his kingdom, right? It could be today. Wouldn't that be a great Easter? That would be awesome. But if he doesn't, and physical death comes, remember separation. So my spirit leaves this body. To be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord. I don't have to fear death. Man, it's a promotion. Because I get to go be with him. Folk, 
This is the meta-narrative, the big picture. To understand the cross, to understand the resurrection, you've got to understand that Jesus was coming to undo, to, to restore what was lost in the garden. But it only happens by faith. You know, to me, that's the greatest story that's ever been told. I mean, I, I can't imagine how we would ever come up with a better story than that, right? Because it's about the greatest man who ever lived, the greatest sacrifice that's ever been given, the greatest miracle the world has ever seen where somebody raises himself from the dead. And I believe it leads to the greatest question that you will ever have to answer. And the question is this, have you come to that place where you have put your faith in Jesus and in Jesus alone for your salvation? That's the issue. It's not are you a good person. It's not, a, hey, you, that you're in church. It's have you come to believe that he died for you. He paid for your sins. And you have invited him to wash you clean. Great news is if you haven't, you can do that right now. I'm going to invite you to bow your head and hearts with me. You know, it's not about saying a prayer. It's not about saying the right words. It's about faith. And here's the thing I need you to understand about faith. Faith, faith is not an emotion. Faith is an act of the will. It's a choice. Noah chose to believe God. Abraham chose to believe God. Moses made an act of his will to choose to believe God. And Today, you have that opportunity to choose to believe. We often express that choice through the words of prayer. And it's not the words that are all that important. But if you want to put your faith in Jesus, you can do it just right where you are, whether here, watching at home, just simply by asking him something like this. Dear Lord Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I know my life is broken. And I need you. I believe that you died for my sins to pay my penalty. And Lord, I want you to forgive me. And I want you to make me your child.